Destruction and dystopias. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It is a podcast where a comedian who has never read a Marvel comic book before in his life watches a Marvel movie or TV show and then quizzes another comedian. This one was taught to read with Marvel comics. This one is a Marvel expert. Welcome to the Days of Future Past episode. Of that MVM cast. Uh, my name is Rob Holden. I'm one of your hosts. I'm also a comedian. I'm a writer. Um, and I'm the Marvel expert half of the equation. And uh, he's the yin to my yang. Um, he's a very ignorant boy. And it's his Marvel journey that we're going on. It's Mr. Will Preston. You set me up to sound like the worst kind of protagonist in a story. It's his journey. Unfortunately, he's an idiot. <laughs> But what kind of journey would it be if you were just going in a straight line? Yeah, yeah, no yeah. No journey it, at all. It, it would be a very bad journey. I'm basically like the dude it, from The Big Lebowski. Odysseus just didn't go home. <laughs> <laughs> there was all this stuff that happened on the way. Um, yeah. We're not here to talk about uh, The Big Lebowski or, indeed, Greek fables. Um, we're here to talk about Days of Future Past, not the movie. Mm. That's, That's on the docket at some point. We're looking at one of the most timeless Marvel stories of all time, one of the most classic X-Men stories of all time, and we're doing it through the very first adaptation to the screen, which was in the 1990s on the X-Men animated series, and that wonderful cast of writers, producers, and uh, talented voice artists who brought it to life. Um, it's, a, it's a good adaption. It's the first adaption, and as we have chronicled here before, that cartoon is, number one, a touchstone for a generation of people that discovered and loved Marvel, it's it's the it's like the gateway that a huge amount of people had introduced them into Marvel comics, into superheroes, and the X Men, and it led directly to um, the commissioning and the uh, the budget being put up for an X Men movie mm. um, at the end of the nineties, which helped to change the landscape of movies, which helped pave the way for the MCU. So it's important that we look at this. It's a good adaptation as well, um, and it's uh, it's one of the uh, the coolest uh, adaptations, and one of the very few where it's like a direct kind of comic book to uh, TV experience. So that's what we're doing. Um, we will cover the Days of Future Past movie at some point in the future. Oh, but not right now. Right now, we're going to go to the classic, to the very first, uh, um, the very first kind of adaptation of that. And I'm super excited for this. Will I'm really excited. How are you feeling? I, I I'm super excited for it too. I'd really love to do the film at some point, but uh, I think it's important we do the cartoon first, as there's some other stuff the film doesn't touch upon and characters that the film doesn't have and stuff. We haven't looked. Did you know this, Will? We mm. haven't looked at Marvel Mutants since Halloween last year. Oh, we God, looked... we haven't, have yeah. we? How long? That's been <clears throat> six months. And we haven't looked at the X-Men since August last year when we covered the Wolverine. The... Oh, so... wasn't that a great one? There's an awful... It's great yeah. to kind of return to this corner it is. of uh, the Marvel Universe and the Marvel uh, media mm. empire. Um, of course, we, we put out one of our bonus shows about Wolverine um, the other week, a couple of weeks ago, as part of the... Versiversary! There it is. Um, more on that 
soon. But coming up on this show, we go behind the scenes on the making of the classic X-Men animated series from the 90s. We go behind the page on one of the most influential Marvel stories of all time. We look at the nightmarish future the X-Men have in store. We explore Bishop, Gambit, the Super Sentinels, the traitor that betrays the X-Men, and so much more. It's all to come on this stacked, packed, and jacked <laughs> MVM podcast um, as we uh, come to the end of the Versiversary, the end of three years of um, of Marvel versus Marvel. Babe, did you ever think we'd get this far? I I had no expect as we always as always say had no expectations. We're starting this podcast. Here we are, three years later, staring at each other via webcam, <laughs> trying to keep the marriage alive. <laughs> <laughs> trying to spice things up with cartoons and live events in front of performing in front of other people, because um, that's something we got to do. Mm. We got to do the live show. This is this the first. This might be the first record since yeah, it's the I first record since a live show. The first course since a live show, and I've got some other stuff, some fun stuff that happened to me recently that I'll tell you when 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 we get to that. But yeah, God, the live show that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, the Arena Theatre, Wolverhampton. Um, shout out to everyone that came to see us. Yes, uh, made that journey and came along. It was so cool to see so many of you. Um, and um. And to, to to hang out a little bit, we saw people come before the show. Mm. Uh, it was kind of it was a, it was weird because like with the the first live show, we got to do like uh, we got everyone in the seated, and then we came out and said, "Hello, we are the performers." And <laughs> this one, there was kind of nowhere for us to sit other than on the stage, and so people just trickled in, and we just started chatting to everyone and saying hi. And I I, um, I prefer that. I actually because I, I when I used to when I used to gig in comedy, if, if I was doing a, a live like a uh, an hour show and it was just me obviously like you know there's no act before me i'll just stand there and talk to the audience that they come in get the rapport going get the, yeah. get the muscles going if you will it's six or one half a dozen of the other as mm. as an mc from stand-up i'm i i like that because what i i go into warm-up mode before the gig starts mm. and i've already been you know, cracking some jokes and getting everyone kind of warmed up and taking the mic and everything. But I think as as like I want the com- I don't want the com- I want the comedians to be the performers that come out and perform. Yes, and you go, oh, the show is starting. So you know, um, but we had a, a lovely fun experience um, with the Arena Theatre. Um, it was uh, it was great to do another live show. Mm. It was great to be able to meet people and say hello and see our. Cool MVM T-shirts in the wild. Um, Peter J made badges like he did yes, last time as well. He did um, some great cool badges. I gave I <laughs> I ended up having to go back to him to get more because what happened is <laughs> it's one of my godson's birthdays, yeah. and I went to see him. I brought him a present, and my other littler godson, who's about six, went, uh, Uncle Rob. Have you brought me a little present as well? <laughs> and I was like, "It's not your birthday, buddy." And he went, "Yeah, I know that, but have you bought me a little present to stop me from getting jealous?" Oh, <laughs> like, wow! Oh, Look at no, that. No, I, I haven't. And his mom and dad said, "No, no, no, buddy, that's not a thing." Like, uh, 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 nanny gives me one, and and Tony gives me one. He goes, "That's just family." And he went, "Uncle Rob is family. You say it all the time." I, I was like, he's caught me out there. He's used logic. That's terrible when a child uses logic. So so the only thing I had on me that was of any note was <laughs> an MVM badge. So I went, you can have this badge. There's only like 15 <laughs> of them in the entire world. And he went, yeah, no, that'll do. That'll be that'll great. D- no, no, wow, this is great. Uh, that'll no. do. 
You were... And then the, his older brother, whose birthday it was, who just got some presents, went, uh, have you got one for me? Like, no, no. Da, da, da. So I had to go back to Peter J and say, Peter J, can I please have another badge? Because, oh, God, so many family reasons and commitments. <laughs> so oh. there we go. You should you should have just doubled down and said no. I mean, you don't give the child whatever's in your pocket. Yeah, the live show yeah. which we filmed and recorded is going to be out this week mm. only on Patreon. Only on Patreon. Um, it's only available to the wonderful people on Patreon. The video version is up there, an audio version for people that can't afford video. Um, that's <laughs> going to be up there later this week. Patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel, the only way to get it. Um, Will, uh, you had... You met someone <laughs> from the MCU. Yes! I mean, I... This should have been how we started the show, but uh... in the last week... What ha- <laughs> in the last week... I got a weird I got a weird text from you <laughs> like after midnight I'm fast asleep um I've given up booze recently for a bit and so my sleep has just become this heavy juggernaut that lays me out and I get a text from Will I think oh a drunk text from Will it's not a boozy call is it what's going on um and I, I don't even really look at the picture properly I just see you're out in a nightclub fine and I turn it off and I put it down go back to sleep and I don't I forgot I'd even looked at it and then the <laughs> next day I find out that you've been out on the town partying with a member of the Marvel universe well not exactly partying uh, I'll just set the thing up a bit and then I'll reveal who I saw well basically uh, a celebrity was playing jazz uh, with a jazz band. It, Ronnie Scott's in Soho in London. I think that's immediately narrowed it down. <laughs> there <laughs> we Think go. about who's in the MCU. People, yeah, nah, let's, let's, let's narrow it down. ScarJo's not playing Ronnie Scott's, is she? <laughs> yeah, well, you, well who, who knows? It could be someone incredibly minor. You never know. But uh, we went out for, uh, for, for a nice dinner first. It was me and my three mates who used to work with, uh, back when I used to work for Sainsbury's Entertainment, uh, <laughs> my first, my first uh, software testing job. Uh, three, three friends of mine who I'm very, very much fond of, and we always do, go out and do silly stuff like this. But uh, we went to, uh, we went to the uh, Ronnie Scott's Jazz uh, Jazz Club, uh, absolute institution in London, and we went to see Jeff Goldblum play jazz and not only that he was wandering around the audience before the show chatting to everybody and after the show people were lining up to take their photo with him we we, we cheekily did it twice because we didn't get our friend in the <laughs> group shot in one of them and he was so lovely about it and he was such a lovely guy charming as ever to the audience i mean he, wow. he, he is exactly how he is on screen he's so just you that, have got yeah. a picture uh, with the Grand Master. With the Grand Master himself, Mr. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Incredible. Jeff I Goldblum don't... of the uh, MCU and the JPCU, the Jurassic Park Cinematic Yeah, universe. of course, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, I don't, I mean, yeah, we, if, if anyone else out there has got a picture with someone from the Marvel Universe, yeah. we want to know about it, we want to hear about it, and we want to see it. We're on uh, Twitter, at Marvel versus, show us them pics of you in the Marvel Universe. This show is all about the two sides of the Marvel coin, the yin and the yang, two different experiences. I represent those people that grew up reading Marvel comics. Not a lot of us knocking around these days. Um, and Will represents hmm. everybody else, the people that got into these um, incredible characters and stories through the TV shows, cartoons, through movies, um, etc. So... <laughs> 
we take a little dive now into the mind of a muggle, um, someone not versed in the Marvel universe. <laughs> I saw what you were trying to do there. So, Will, yes. when the X, are you watching this X Men animated series when it's arriving in the early nineties in the UK? Ah, uh, yes, I, I I vividly remember watching the X Men cartoon. Uh, in the early 90s. I think my brother... I, I, this is the third time we're handling the X-Men cartoon, so I'm going to repeat things. My brother had, uh, for school, like the, uh, an X-Men rucksack with, with all of them on the back, you know, in the middle of a fighting scene. That was cool. Um, mm. I thought it was great. The, I merch, loved, the merch was huge. The, the merch was massive. Merch was... It was massive merch. Merch, merch all you want. But... I remember it. Bit, what was that, Will? Shut up. I, re- I remember. <laughs> when sh- you don't have a genuine thing to say, you try to take the last word and turn it into some sort of turn of phrase or catchphrase. It's ever so peculiar. And, and, just and, move on. It's and, fine. And there you are laughing. The uh, effect. Uh, 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 no, I'm turning to Jeff Goldblum now. Uh, no, I, I remember it being a big thing. And I remember loving the cartoon because I love the idea of all these uh, diverse people with different powers, different personalities, working together as a team, because superheroes to me was always one guy, just the one guy Mm. against things. And this was like, no, everybody here has their little thing. They all have different, like, uh, dynamics between each other. It was great. And I remember uh, watching Days of Future Past. But I think I I watched it in the noughties when I was... um, I was getting back into X-Men again, but I didn't get any comics, so I just watched the cartoons again. Like mm. on my computer, and I remember watching. It's a, it. it's a striking episode, isn't it? It's a memorable episode. I think Bishop mainly. It's it's what it's definitely ones that stood out because you go from like here's the good guys, there's the bad guys. There's lots of different plots where there's fighting and different bad guys each week, and then it's like oh, there's an episode where in the future everything goes wrong, and mm. then something then there's a chance to change. So it was like a massive thing. This felt like a I, I'm, I'm a big sucker for time travel plots. And anything that involves, like, I come from a dark future, we must prevent the dark future from happening or something. And I love that. I'm an absolute sucker for those kind of stories. I think by the time you then, you then rewatch it in the 2000s, mm. that thing you're talking about has become a trope. It's a trope, but it's a trope I adore. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not using trope in a in a, in a negative connotation. Course, it's just course. become part of the language of science fiction stories, TV shows, movies, and that. But well, I love the Terminator. 90- I'm a big fan of the Terminator franchise, mm. even though it's mainly just two films. <laughs> Dark. I, I really enjoyed Dark Fate. Dark um, Fate the, was fun, but yeah. the the early nineties. I'm not sure it had become. I'm not sure it had been so overwhelmingly done. Mm. Um. You know, in the, by the early nineties. Well, I re- I remember there were some video but, games that were doing those kind of stuff. I remember Echo the Dolphin games were doing time mm, travel and change. Time travel, yeah, that's right. And I loved it because there was this kind of like really new agey sort of look into the dark future and the light future, and it would just it just really. Uh, if I was an artist, it would have really uh, you know inspired me, but I wasn't. So it, I just took it face value. <laughs> so it didn't. So it did inspire me. It's great to look at. Soundtrack was great. I can talk about Echo the Dolphin for, okay, for the ages. Good. Let's move on then. <laughs> we don't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna um yeah. in a minute. I'm gonna reach under my desk. Hello. And press a red button. And this red button is connected to the internet. <laughs> and this red button 
sends electrical surges through the uh, Wi-Fi down the power lines and transforms Will Preston into Mr. Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) And I am about to press it now. So, ladies and gentlemen, is the man that goes diving through the trash cans of Hollywood, digs up the dirt, puts it on a table and tells us to eat. Press the button. It's Mr. Hollywood. Mr. Hollywood! That was worth the uh, cost of installation. Uh, (laughs) It's Mr. Hollywood here. I'm going to go behind the scenes for the X-Men animated series, specifically Days of Future Past. So, as we all know, Rob, the X-Men animated series was a huge success. Huge, Rob. Huge! It premiered to massive ratings in 1993, becoming the number one rated series on Saturday morning. The LA Times ran a story about how X-Men had pulled the small Fox network ahead of the three massive and well-established networks, NBC, CBS and ABC. They were times when X-Men ratings were bigger than all three networks combined. Some Saturday morning. That's that's, that's mad. That's mad. That, that's this is a cartoon we're talking about. We're not talking about Seinfeld. We're talking mm. about a Saturday morning cartoon in the nineties. That doesn't happen. Some Saturday uh, mornings, over half the TV watching households in America were watching the X Men. I was about to say. I wonder if Saturday mornings has not got a lot of viewers then. Mm. And then you just said, no, over half the TV-watching households in America were watching the X-Men. That is absolutely massive. Wasn't Saturday morning a a TV time for you as a kid? Was that a big TV time? As kids, yeah. But kids aren't... aren't, It's not... I don't think it's going to rival, like, when... You know the when Seinfeld is on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's a like different Saturday thing. mornings. Is uh, you know it's it's not if there's not programming on for adults, how high those ratings going to be? Yeah, exactly. Um, isn't it weird to think of a time when the Fox network was a small network? <laughs> well, yeah, I was talking about this the other day uh, to someone about The Simpsons about when it used to be as the Fox network used to be a small thing. Mm, the and underdog, the, Sim- yeah. the, the Simpsons was then taking a punt. Like a massive risk yeah. and going right, we'll just try anything, and it turned out to be possibly the biggest TV show of all time. Mm. Uh, I don't know about that. What, what would you think? What do you think has a bigger cultural reach than The Simpsons? What TV show do you think has a bigger cultural reach? Coronation Street. Coronation <laughs> since the 1960s. <laughs> yeah, but does okay, it's the Hollywood? <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not viewed around the world unless there's a really weird niche market. Of course is, it is. Is it? Yeah. It's got a video game and everything. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm i blindsided by Roy Cropper in a beat-em-up. Uh, Roy Cropper versus the Space Mutants. That's the video game. What's the Roy Cropper versus the Space <laughs> Mutants? <laughs> oh, I've got it in my head. Sorry. Anyway, anyway. Mr. Hollywood continues. The success spilled over into action figures, merchandise, video games, VHS tapes, Pizza Hut tie-ins, and tons more, becoming an important revenue stream for a struggling Marvel comics. I yeah. had tons of the action figures. Mm. They, they, they came at a time, kind of before this, it was hard in this country, um, and maybe outside of... Yeah, you know, it 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 was it was it's perhaps a little bit more because I don't live in a in a city. Yeah. Um and going to a Toys R Us was like maybe you did it once or twice a year for some oh, reason. Those those um, were times you remember. You never forget going in Toys R Us, mate. Yeah. It was but, a magical place. So um 
there weren't a huge amount of, a- of superhero action figures oh. knocking around. Right. Like, and when they were, it, it, and even because I'm, 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 my mind is taking me back to pre-Batman movie as well. Mm. Like, there just aren't a lot of... And then even at the Batman movie, it's just Batman. There's yeah. not a lot of other variety. And so you could get a Superman, a Batman, a Spider-Man, a Hulk. Yeah. And then suddenly, the X-Men cartoon is on, and the toy stores are full of glorious, glorious characters that no one knows about that I love. Um, and we'll talk about... Uh, one a little bit later on, I, I think if I can remember it, I had a really great um, action figure of, of a slightly obscure character that features in this in this series. But you know, you get a banshee, and you get not not an angel figure, but an archangel figure, Ooh. and you get an apocalypse figure, and you get multiple different Wolverines that do different things. I got the Weapon X variety of Wolverine, That's where he's got hell. all the stuff sticking all over him, and he's got the cybernetic helmet on. It was just fab. What I love about the the excessive amount of different action figures you get is you get these funny articles online of the weirdest action mm. figures. I remember seeing mm. an Aunt May action figure that did not look like Aunt May. I can't think that. Yeah, I, I, it I don't know if bad. That, it looked that bad. That must have been like a, a very strange special release because it, it wouldn't have been a general one. Um, yeah. I do remember as well making, like, begging my family to go to Pizza Hut so I could get. Mm. I think they were tie-in cups or something. I remember um, those. They did Star Trek ones at one point in the early nineties. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that because was because McDonald's had massive success with that kind of thing. Yeah. And Pizza Hut did as well. Um, and I and this is just a a different way of consuming media. Yeah. Going to buy an X Men <laughs> animated series on VHS, and you would get for the for for like the high cost of like over a tenner. Yeah, what would it have been ten fifteen pounds? You'd get to watch two or three episodes. Two that that always for fifteen pounds. That is such a bizarre thing to think about. Yeah, you, you, you get access to box sets and you can stream all episodes. Like back in our day, you paid a lot of money. You paid the equivalent of a month's network subscription. Netflix subscription or whatever to yeah. watch two episodes on yeah. a VHS, and it just it just felt mad. Felt it mad started that. to get to the point where you you were watching three or maybe you would get four. Um, if you if you were like me and you got an extra tape because you've been a very good boy uh, in the year, you get another tape. You get a Power Rangers tape, and then maybe another tape, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles tape, and then you're like, all oh, right. Going to watch these two episodes repeatedly. Yes, that's why I struggle watching the start of this animated series because I go, oh, God, these are like the six episodes, seven episodes that I had and that I watched to death and I can't stand watching them because yeah, I must yeah. have played them into the ground. Um, and it was also wasn't terribly good. It didn't feel like a good economy to me because, you know, I was at the same time I was buying or renting uh, wrestling tapes spending mm. roughly the same amount of money and getting like a three-hour show. Yes, so I remember it's those. Odd to, it's odd to then go from that to get something that's sometimes it feels like it's less than an hour, two 20-minute episodes, well, I used three 20-minute episodes. Well, I, I thought I thought it was really weird because then i just get like a Memorex E180 or whatever and then mm. do a special... We had a special the video uh, VHS player where you could record long play. So I think it was like slightly less quality, but you got like double... Yeah. The play, so I'd be there going. I can store hours and hours on this one tape. Why aren't they yeah. doing that? And it always, nah, they conf- don't always, want to. They always, always, always confuse me. Okay, Mr. Hollywood, take it away. Right, Mr. Hollywood. He continues. So these two episodes were from the first series, which were originally called Future Tense. Ooh. So they weren't going to be called Days of Future Past. They were going to be called a bad pun. 
Yeah, they were gonna. Well, Days of Future Past is kind of slightly a play on an old, on kind of an old friends phrase. What's the old phrase? Days of. Well, I don't, I don't exactly know if it's an old, but uh thinking of days of futures past. Oh, days know, of memories, like, memories past. Days, days of, of memories past. past days, days of, of future, future past. Oh, but that's cleverer. I like that. Day, future tense. tense. Future well, tense. Yeah, it sounds the awful. Tense situation from the future. Yeah. Yeah. Episode writer Julia Leowald said, While we're proud of many of the episodes, I think adapting Days of Future Past in the Phoenix Saga for television were among the biggest challenges, since X-Men fans had preconceived ideas about these classics. The pilot story, Night of the Sentinels, was a real challenge, since we had to introduce this strange world to an audience, 90% of whom knew nothing about it. Nightcrawler dealt with faith in a way we'd never seen on Saturday morning TV. Nightcrawler as a title of an episode, not the character. Well, yeah, because he's... There's an, an episode titled Nightcrawler is that, dealt with faith. Is that where he's hiding in the, the, the monastery? Yeah. Yeah. One. yeah. Um, the, 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 the details on that episode are fantastic. And, uh, we, we use as a reference point for this episode um, a great book by Eric Leewald, who is Julie mm. Leewald's husband and was the head writer of the X-Men. And he wrote an exhaustive book on the making of the series. It's called Previously on X-Men, which is how <laughs> every episode except for the first one started, Previously on X-Men. Um, and it's packed with trivia and insight. And they talked about all of the standards and practice notes on how to do that episode, mm. which is deal- dealing with faith. And it's all stuff like, okay, it's a monastery, sort of, but it has to relate to no religion. Yeah. There can be no crucifixes. Yeah. There can be no religious iconography anywhere. Yeah. We're not saying you can pray to a god, but it's not, you know, a Christian yeah. god. It's just a, a fascinating tightrope that had to walk in every episode. Cryptotheism, it's called. No, that's mm. what it probably would be called. I like that because that's mm. people would say, ah, you're cancelling something or, oh, you're a, a Peter. No, but, but like... It's like you have to be inclusive of that kind of thing. And in a way, I kind of like that challenge because you get interesting results for creativity. Anyway, and she continues. And One Man's Worth, my favourite of our dozens of original stories, was so satisfying that Marvel used it later as the basis for Age of Apocalypse. No, they did not, Julie Leewald. We've got into this exhaustively on our Age of Apocalypse episode. <laughs> um, they were in production at the same time. It seems... it, it It's... It, from everything that you can see about it, it is a weird coincidence. Um, mm. Yeah. This is so, like when uh, they argue who invented bullet time first, the video game Max Payne or the film The Matrix, and they both came out at the same time. Mm, yeah. Sure. It's just like that, yeah. Just like that, Rob. <laughs> something you don't know about. So, so, so it must be stupid even mentioning it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah shut up. <laughs> video games, though. Mr. Hollywood also covers video games. Um, when the episode originally aired, it ended with Forge looking at an android in the tank. The episode was reanimated for subsequent airings to show Wolverine's skeleton as originally intended. This was apparently due to some miscommunication. Eric Leadwell said the skeleton was to show that time and history had been affected and not in a good way. Did you spot that? I knew, I see that it's it's Wolverine's adamantium skeleton. Yeah, I could see how that looked that looked like a robot at one point. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not. I don't see. I didn't take it that it means time and history has been affected, because Bishop, as we'll talk about, goes into the time portal as loads of Sentinels attack, trying to kill Forge and Wolverine. Mm. So to me, it felt like he just comes back and yeah, the result of when you left, Wolverine was killed. 
We've got, killed, and we claimed his skeleton. Actually, yeah, because we talked about his re- healing re- regenerative powers, so it does make sense. Reflecting on writing for X-Men, Days of Future Past, uh, part two writer uh, Robert N. Skier said, In 83, the thought of doing a comic book movie was kind of idiotic. Anyway, I was learning how to write screenplays and figuring out. I got my degree and wrote a short film that got produced. I was writing spec scripts with my then writing partner. Then Batman came out and was a mega hit. A few months later, they came out with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and everyone knew what mutants were. They were turtles who yelled cowabunga and loved pizza. That's what mutants were. I was like, okay, someone's going to find the X-Men one day, and they're going to F it up. I want to write an X-Men screenplay. I want to know that it was done right at least once. I sat down and wrote a screenplay that distilled the best of what John Byrne and Chris Claremont had to offer. It was how Wolverine joined the X-Men, but it borrowed a bit from Days of Future Past and the Magneto story where they get hijacked. I took the best little bits and made a two-hour presentation that told you everything you need to know about the X-Men universe. I showed it to my then writing partner. He called me later and said, When I opened the cover and saw the title, I groaned. I can't believe you wrote this. You're never going to sell it. I can't believe you wasted your time. But I had to write this. That thing I wasted my time on wound up making my career. A few years later, when Fox Kids announced they were going to be doing X-Men, my writing partner was working at Fox and said, Hey, I know a guy you should talk to. Mm. The people they hired were terrific at doing TV animation, but they didn't know the X-Men. They could read a pile of comics, but at that point, they had 30 years of comics to read. I had already assimilated it. I knew which books to read. I knew which characters to focus on. So I wrote all the character breakdowns for it. Around that time, there was talk of doing an X-Men movie, and my friend managed to get my script to Avi Arid. He read it and said... I really like it, but when we do an X-Men movie, it's going going to be much later than this. In my screenplay, the team was very secret, and the world didn't know about them yet. So I can see, I, I can see some things, some aspects that made it into the X-Men film, like mutants still being fairly secretive, and and it being focusing like Wolverine's journey into the X-Men. I get that aspect. Yeah, I guess so. Did he write? For the X Men movie, I don't think so, Rob. I no, don't think so, no. Rob. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm just attaching things to things, Rob. I'm just okay. attaching yeah. things to things, just yeah. chipping away. Head writer Eric Leewald said, in terms of the first season's thirteen story arc, Days of Future Past is kind of a self-contained interruption, a digression, an event so challenging for the X Men that the audience doesn't mind that we forget about the problem of modern-day Sentinels for a while. Since future Sentinels are involved, including a super-Sentinel called Nimrod, there is a connection. Another is the use of Mystique. We needed an assassin, and a shapeshifter helped set up this story's twists. But housing her also connects connected us to the previously established Apocalypse plot. This also allowed us to add a scene that sets up a major Mystique rogue story in later episodes. The story's new, darker ending, the time travel mission fails this time versus the who knows ending in the books, was chosen to set up the next episode, the big final finale co-starring Magneto. I don't get a vibe from this that that they fail. Like Not at the end? I, well, the future's still this, this bad. One. The future's still bad, Rob. Future's bad. 
Right. Uh, yeah. Sorry. That's a good point. Future I bad. Guess they don't talk. Yeah. I'm. I'm getting. What I'm doing is I'm. I'm over. 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 Superimposing conversations from the comic book onto the animated story. Yeah. You're talking about stuff that wasn't in the cartoon, Rob. Yeah, I am. I'm. I got that feeling. Yeah. Actually, that's the whole yeah. crux of this podcast. It You're is, talking yeah. about stuff that wasn't in the film, Rob. Yeah. Why? 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 Anyway. Because the the comic book goes into the story with this thing of we don't know what will happen. Mm. If we okay. change the past, we might all just stay here anyway because it might just create a divergent timeline. We don't know. Mm. Um Yeah. So yes, it is a it is a, a a dark ending. It's not a darker ending. It's not. We're it's, gonna get. We're gonna get to it. It is not a darker ending. If the live shows anything to go by, uh, there, there's plenty of darkness to 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 be beheld and upon in the Marvel universe. Ooh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's uh, take a uh, a little think about um, what is happening in the uh, the world of 1993 when this uh, TV show, these episodes come out. Um, or it might have been, yeah, it was around 93, I think, when Daisy, because it was the first and the 13th mm. part. Um, uh, so, 1993, I would have been 10 years old, Will Preston. Well, um, I would have been and six. I, yeah, I, 10 years old. Um, I, you know, there was an awful lot of, of comic book involvement from 10-year-old Rob. Um, I, what did I have? I So I would have had a standing order at my local... W.H. Smith's newsagents um, for the British reprint comics, the Superman comic book and the Batman comic book. They mm. both had in them reprints of like all the stories that were going on in the different Superman and Batman comics. And Batman had Justice League International yeah. in the back as well. Loved that. Um, around this time, I was probably getting uh, DC Action came up briefly. Um, I was also probably I was also getting whatever it was either the. Um, called Spider-Man Omnibus, the complete Spider-Man, or the exploits mm. of Spider-Man. I think it was around ten when that was coming out. So those were me the big three because there was no comic book shop where I lived. So you were relying on the newsagents getting the stuff that was um the so you you were relying on newsagents getting you UK reprints. Yeah, I had no access to um, American copies um in, except for when I make the ret the the sort of. Once every four to six weeks, we go up to Stoke, Stoke on Trent, Hanley, and there's a, there's a dirty comic book shop up there which I'd go to and get reprints and American comics from. I remember when I didn't have a subscription to some things. I remember like saving up pocket money and then going to the shop each day to check if the new magazine, like gaming magazine, was out. Yeah, those were. Those but were you good never times. knew when it was coming out anyway. So never knew. Even though I had a subscription, I would go in. Every time I was in town, which was mm. every week, and go to my little folder mm. in the filing cabinet in Smith's and search my name and then go, oh, no, yes. nothing in today. And I'd get excited right before I checked and then very yeah. disheartened when it wasn't there. I, it just it was a different time, completely different time, mate. It felt, it just feels, yeah. but, but do you know what? When it comes to tangibility of actually getting, going somewhere, picking something up, taking it with you, rather than downloading instantly, there's a, it feels it, it's there's something warm about it because it's always nice to hold something. I think it, I think there there is a war, there is a stronger connection between you and the thing you consume because there's anticipation. Yes, anticipation. And there's a feeling of reward when you've got it. 
Yes. And I don't think there is a feeling of reward. Uh, I don't think that pleasure, I think the pleasure is different now. Mm. Um, I certainly, like, I think um, things like Succession mm. have, and a bunch of other shows as well, um, Breaking Bad and things like that, have really proved that the consume everything at once model yeah. should be knocked into a, you know, cocked into a bit hat because nothing is better than now when a new episode drops and it dominates the conversation yes. and everyone talks about it for a week. Plus, you know, dropping an entire season at once is just like what? I'm supposed to catch on that up on that right away just so I can join in the conversation and not have spoilers. It feels a bit presumptuous. I suppose so, yeah. There are some things that benefit from binge binging through them, but I actually think those are things that struggle. Like mm. The Walking Dead yeah. um past its really great seasons in the middle. Mm. Um The Walking Dead ha- had these seasons where it was almost like two good episodes, one bad, or one good, one bad. Now when you binge, that's kind of fine. Yeah. Because you go, okay, but I'm caught up with the story with the characters I want to and the next episode's good. Mm. When you watch week to week, you go, God, it's another bad episode. That yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure if I want this anymore. So That was my experience. That was exactly that. my experience of walk, watching The Walking Dead. When it doesn't matter, we're not here to talk about that. Um no. so you how you said you were six. I was six. I was playing Sonic. I remember getting an Amiga 500 that Christmas. So a lot's changed then since from then to now. I'm still playing, playing Sonic, Sonic. <laughs> but, but, but now on a massive gaming PC. And I'm still doing <laughs> as well. I, like, I'm still reading comics. and <laughs> Don't... What, what, I mean, it makes you think like, oh, people our age, people of our generation, millennials, uh, we, we, we sort of still do the stuff we kind of did as kids in a way. Yeah, a lot of it. Uh, I'm just wondering if that, what, that never really happened back in the old days. I don't know. Um, people that were racist in the fifties are still racist now. There he is. There he is. World events. Uh, Bill Clinton was sworn into office as the forty-second president of Ooh. the United States in nineteen ninety-three. The saxophone playing ne'er do well. Um, <laughs> the uh, European single market is created from the European Economic Community. Eliminating the trade barriers within the EU. What a brilliant idea that is, Will. <laughs> I wish we could have been a part of it. Yeah. Um, uh, follow it. I can't wait till half this country is dead. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everything can just go back to normal. It'd be great. It'll just age out and things will be better. Um, following tabloid reports of an imminent divorce uh, between Prince Charles and Princess Diana, UK bookmakers slash the odds of the monarchy being abolished by the year 2000. The odds go from 100 to 1 to 50 to 1. Did you ever watch the uh, film The Queen with Helen Mirren as the Queen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it was all about what was happening at the uh, the death of Mm. Diana, and they were talking about the public opinion of the royal family dropped that much, and I'm wondering now if that's going to happen again, because I don't think Charles is very popular. (laughs) Old sausage hands. I don't Aus- know. He's <laughs> oh, old Chucky three, as I like to call them. Chucky three uh, with his big old sausage fingers. What's what's the reference there? Chucky three because it's King Charles the third. 
Chucky oh, Three. Okay, got you. I thought it was a reference to the third Chucky Boot movie. No, 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 um, no, no, no. And I was like, I've not seen that one. Has he got sausage hands in it? Has he got sausage um, No, Chucky. The first known reference to Y2K is published in Computer World Magazine 1993 <sighs> with an article by a Canadian software specialist titled Doomsday 2000. Um, do you just want to explain to any of our younger listeners what the Y2K problem was or was thought to be? Oh, the Y2K problem, I think, because I, I, it was basically the way computer were initially set up that the moment that the year 2000 rolls around it will cause like a a, a glitch or a, a vulnerability yeah, so within the, the major computer systems around the world the dates were not in the the, the dates had like an upper limit on them yeah. so the dates could only go to 1999 they were not programmed to be able to go 2000 after that the one at the start was never meant or allowed to switch to two you, um, you and think, they thought that would cause and yeah it was a real problem. It was a real huge, massive, massive problem. This this wasn't like a conspiracy theory, what if. No, this was actually a genuine problem that they had to sort out. It, it <laughs> took did. a concerted worldwide effort to yeah. conquer the problem, to release patches, mm. and to come up with solutions so that hospitals didn't stop working and air yeah. traffic controller things didn't go out. It was, it was a... yeah. Y2K was a real, it could well have been. It's thanks to probably articles like this that we didn't all die. Um, Amazing. Uh, and in what has been deemed on this list as equally important news, the video game Doom is released. <laughs> the, the, sorry, but Doom is just, sorry, it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the video game they use as a benchmark over where a, a, a PC or a computer, any single thing's good enough. They even got it to work on a birth control thing. What 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 does that mean? I don't understand that sentence. It's a kind of a mean, it's kind of a I mean, mean thing. It's like what you're saying. the whole thing is: oh, good computer, good device, good piece of machinery, good anything, but can it run Doom? Oh, wait, it's a meme. Of Doom, course. Doom, Doom is very significant video game, and I, I thought I played put it. it on. I played it. It was yeah, no Duke Nukem, but there you go. Oh, um, I love. I'm a big Duke Nukem fan, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. funny. Um, <laughs> funny. It was really funny. After a mission to repair an optical flaw. <laughs> um, what? Well, who wrote this? After a mission to repair an optical floor was launched on December 2nd. Oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. Basically, very... the first images from the Hubble telescope are taken. Hubble um, telescope? Jeez. <laughs> you sound not like it's an old friend you went to college with. Gee. Hubble <laughs> telescope, oh, Hubble. you son of a bitch. Come here. <laughs> here comes, <laughs> Come. old here comes um, trouble, old Hubble. Hubble trouble. And the artist Prince had to change his name. Um, to Did he have artist to? Yes, he did have to. Yeah. Oh, it was all part of his huge. Um, he got out of his contract with Sony. Ah, um, yes, I see. And Sony owned the name Prince. So his way around it was changing his name to the artist formerly known as Prince, which was a symbol because they uh, mm. they didn't have. Well, was, the symbol was a thing, but it was so people would say the artist formerly known as Prince, which has mm. got his name in it, but they can't copyright that. Um, so he changed his name to a interesting symbol. Prince is awesome. I love um, Prince. In the music world, um, Whitney Houston enters the record <clears> books with her single "I Will Always Love You," and is a fourteenth week at number one in the U.S. Fourteen weeks at number one. Like there were a number of songs that like did this over the years, and I remember it being like. It was like a news story every week, wasn't it, when the charts came out on a Sunday. Oh, it was God, like, yeah. oh, that song is still there at number one. So it was like, just kind of lent to the popularity of the song. I Will Always Love You, Whitney Houston, was, of course, the kind of main hit from the Bodyguard movie with Kevin Costner. Um, 
It's the longest running number one single of all time. Do you remember this? Six, maybe not. I I remember this, I, I remember this song. I remember this being played a lot. Yeah, I, and it's it's it, 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 I think it got played for years because it's a good I, 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 look. It's a good song. You cannot fault it. It is so good. It's not my cup of tea necessarily, but I have to say song. I prefer the original. Um, what the Dolly Parton one? Yeah, yeah. just because I like Dolly's voice and I like uh, I like the sound, the kind of the, I, the more gentler sound of country. I, I didn't hear the Dolly Parton, the original Dolly Parton version, till years and years and years. No, of course later, not. I was yeah. ten. I wasn't checking out original Dolly Dolly, Dolly Parton. Parton yeah. Um, but yes, yeah. I remember this being a, a, a massive one. And Snoop Doggy Dog releases his debut album, Doggy Style. Snoop Doggy Dog. Um, I, I remember the video to him. Everyone's fair. I remember. Distinctly remember the video at the time because it was like um, every time I managed to catch a little bit of MTV at someone's house. Yeah. Uh, everyone's faces were morphing into like dog faces. It was quite an interesting <laughs> music video. The top five singles yes. of the year. Um, and I guess because of sales within that year, that Whitney Houston song does not make the top five. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's, this it's, looks it's a to weird me, one. This looks to me like it's just a UK list wherever it's, wherever it, it's I, been found. I think it is a UK list. I, it, yeah, yeah. I tried to. Um, it's hard to get it on metrics online because you have to do do it by different metrics. So I thought I put a top five of what seemed to be about in. The so, UK. UK. So I do anything for love, but I won't do that. By Meatloaf, another massive one that was ah, oh, I, I loved, I, I loved Meatloaf when I when I was when I was like, between the ages of like ten and thirteen or ten and twelve. I mm. loved Meatloaf. Had all the albums. Mm. Loved him. Great, great. Don't sound. know why. Uh, no, no. He's. I mean, he he he, he does do very good. The songs. stories. He, the, the songs are always really interesting, exciting stories mm. as well. One one um, song that always stuck stuck with me was Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Yes, because that is such that is such a brilliantly cheeky song. It is so. It's it's, it's very clever wordplay in all his songs. Really, yeah. Very, but I, I thought this was um, out in the eighties. That song. I didn't realize it's the nineties. Jeez. Uh, I can't help falling in love with you by UB40. Wise men say only mm-hmm. fools rush in, but I can't <laughs> help falling in. Anyway, I saw a brilliant documentary when I was on holiday once. I don't know yeah. what. I was not doing anything in the evening, and I just ended up turning on one of the channels that had like. It was BBC Four or something, and I had a documentary about UB40's split up, and, <laughs> and it was so good because the, the they had both sides of the of the band on, and everyone yeah. was blaming everyone out. It was really good. Um, all are this they from, once, are they sorry? from around your area? UB40? Are they from a, from Birmingham? some of the Midlands boys? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, all that she wants is another baby, Ace of Base. I remember <sighs> that being like like as kids, we didn't quite know what it meant, and we were like, "What does?" What does it mean? I never, I never um, understood anything about it. I just remember it being on all the time. Yeah, constant, all constant. the time. In fact, all of these are massive ones. The next one is uh, "No Limit" by Two Unlimited. <laughs> I um, love that, that song. I still listen to the stuff like that. I think '90s dance music, early '90s dance music, is just magical. I bloody love it. Dreams by Gabrielle, which is another massive Dreams one. Can come true. Uh, in the, the world of television, all right, that's enough of that now. In the world of television, um, <laughs> X Files lands on Fox. That's another big ma- like Fox for this little network. Yeah, Fox really kicked out of the park. Not so, not kicked out of the park. Knocked out of the park. <laughs> got Fox really got kicked out of the park. <laughs> he was drinking white lightning on the benches. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, David Duchovny, Gillian Anderson, um, 12 million Americans tune in to watch God. the first X-Files. On I need Fox. to re-watch it all. I, um, I, I used to love the X-Files. And um, in the UK, Cracker starring Robbie Coltrane debuts on ITV. I remember, mm. I remember it being. A, I remember it kind of being a new, th- a new grown-up mm. adult thing um, that I wasn't allowed to watch. <laughs> I, I, I same, but I, I got round to watching it for the first time uh, the other year, and it still oh, holds up. It's probably yeah, one it's of really the best good. UK dramas ever. Also kicked off uh, Christopher Eccleston and. Uh, well, who was, he was the other guy, uh, Robert Carlyle, kicked off his and early roles for those guys. Early yeah. roles for those guys. They really did well in that show. Uh, Brandon yeah. Lee, the son of Bruce Lee, dies whilst filming The Crow. Oh. Um, a prop gun kind of gets uh, mixed up with a live bullet, and uh, that's the end of that. Um, and uh, Spielberg's latest film, Jurassic Park, is released and goes on to be the highest-grossing film of all time uh, in by 1993. Fun fact about Jurassic Park... Uh, I don't know if you know this, Rob. I met Jeff Goldblum. So good. Oh, he really, he really, he really liked that. <laughs> you did, yeah, you met him. Yeah, yeah, made me um, smile. Spielberg was making Jurassic Park and Schindler's List simultaneously. That is. I'm sorry, but I don't think another director's ever done not not to gush about Steven Spielberg, but I don't think a director has ever made two successfully polarizing movies. It's an incredible achievement. Yeah, um, both great top, top five movies of 1993, Jurassic Park, Your... The Fugitive. Oh, that's a good movie. Good I film. caught that the other night. It just happened to be on like ITV4 or something late night, and I went, I haven't seen this in years. I'm going to watch all of The Fugitive. I know it's 11.30, but I'm, that's what I'm going to do now. It's just Tommy um, Lee Jones, man. Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, the Firm, which is another, it's another good one. That's that's a nice, tense, rocky movie. Yeah, mm. um, Sleepless in Seattle, um, and Mrs. Doubtfire, which oh. is a uh, an absolutely uh, cracking comedy. It's still good. Mrs. Doubtfire, still brilliant. That was ma- it was magical to watch that when I was a kid. Let's take a little trip behind the page now mm. um, to explore the comic book origins of this story. Um, which, as we've said, is one of the true classic Marvel stories and one of the most influential comic books um, of of all time. Mm. Uh, in the early 80s, this comic came out in 1981, and in the early 80s, the creative team of Chris Claremont and John Byrne have taken the X-Men from the doldrums of, of, of sales and the doldrums of mm. fan interest and created the hottest, most talked-about comic at Marvel or DC, and the best-selling. Um, they have just finished the epic Dark Phoenix saga, uh, which we chronicled, um, which shook the comic book world um, by killing off a, a, a major character at a time when that simply wasn't done. Major characters did not die in in comic books from the 30s through the the, the 70s. Mm. The only real example of a major character dying is the death of Gwen Stacy. Um, Clement and Byrne, when they killed Jean Grey, they they did it. They told such an epic, um, fantastic, dramatic, and emotional story mm. that led to then this this climactic. An impactful moment. Uh, it, it rocketed to the top of the sales charts, and it was an instant. Cl- it was an instant classic, and everyone knew it. Like mm. there was nobody. Nobody was on the fence about the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. So the question becomes: 
in the early 80s after that, what do you do next? How do you follow a classic? How do you follow maybe the greatest comic book story of all time? And on top of that, the band is breaking up. Mm. Clement and Byrne had never had an easy working relationship together on X-Men. And that had been put under more and more strain over the years. So the way it worked was that um, John Byrne had come on board as just the uh, penciler, just the artist, just, he says, um, <laughs> at the start of their collaboration. But he'd become such an intrinsic part of the creative process that um, the stories were now co-plotted by Clement and Byrne. So they would come up with the story ideas, the concepts, the plots together. And then... Um, John Byrne would draw the story, and and Chris Claremont would then write the script and um, the, the 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 all the dialogue, all the words. So Byrne felt that because Chris Claremont had essentially the final say, because his artwork, John Byrne's artwork, was finished, it was handed then over to Chris Claremont, and Claremont could write and have the characters say and the dialogue boxes say whatever he wanted. John Byrne felt that Claremont was using that position to change the X-Men comics from the original ideas they both had together. And he felt that was happening Mm. far too often and his power wasn't, his creative input and creative power wasn't being respected and all that kind of stuff. So John Byrne's leaving the X-Men and he'd go on um, to have memorable runs on the Fantastic Four, um, eventually going to have memorable runs on on She-Hulk, one of the great things that he did is the um, some characters they introduced in the X Men, the Canadian uh, superheroes Alpha Flights, which were mm. Wolverine's old running buddies. Yeah. John Byrne went on to kind of um, write and draw um, that that series, and he became a um, a real a really great auteur on his own as the writer and the artist. Um, so, how is the best team in the business going to follow up on the Dark Phoenix and go out together? <laughs> with a bang (laughs) the idea came in a couple of different ways so Mm. uh they'd received a ton of hate mail after killing off gene gray yikes and that gave them an idea um so chris clement said that john had this idea for essentially upping the ante Mm. from the standpoint of pure publishing practicality and mild greed we were saying, you thought we were suicidal by killing one character. <laughs> now we're going to kill them all. Um, and the, the X-Men editor at the time, Louise Simonson, said, with Dark Phoenix, it was the first realization we had that the comic book shop, sorry, it was the first realization that comic book shops had that major deaths sell. Yep. After the um, death of Jean Grey, dealers would call up Louise Simonson says dealers would call me up and jokingly say, "When so? When's the issue? When are you gonna? When everybody dies? I want to order a lot of that one." So Simonson um, made this move that when the second issue of the two-part Days of Future Past story comes out, it features the tagline: "This issue, everybody dies." And if you fire open the the middle image i've sent you Ooh. oh you can see that um yeah. uh, which is uh, an image of a sentinel absolutely destroying wolverine yeah um, the That's... sentinels are very intrinsic to this story um 
John Byrne wanted to use the Sentinels because he really thought they were cool. Um, uh, but he, he said that Chris Claremont didn't want to use Sentinels because he Claremont said Sentinels are wimpy. Wimpy? Uh, yeah. Not mm. the lovely burger. Um, <laughs> no, of course you don't know what you mean. Not the British burger chain. Not the British burger chain. Uh, like, his, his position was that, like, Sentinels are meant to be mutant-hating weapons of genocide, mm. but all they have to do is, like, capture the X-Men and tie them up. Yeah. And they never really do anything. Um, and John Byrne said, no, the problem is you write them, Wimpy. That's your problem. <laughs> if you let me plot this story with Sentinels, I'll show you what the Sentinels can really do. Yeah. So, Days of Future Past hits the shelves and it hits the readers in the face. Like, from the get-go. It begins in media res, as we say, with the action mm. happening, the story um, in progress. Immediately showing readers a horrifying, dystopian world where all their heroes and favourite characters are dead. And North America is ruled by these compassionless overlord sentinels. Mm. Today, in... In the here and now, we're very used to movies, TV shows starting in the middle of the action and then giving us a flashback to show how events got so exciting and so bad, right? It's become a trope of TVs and movie storytelling mm. because it's that much easier to grab an audience um, with uh, a bit of immediately exciting, tense, life-threatening, wah, this happened, and then mm. go, let me show you how this happened, rather than build up to it, right? <laughs> But this kind of storytelling was not commonplace in 1981. Mm. There was a few, you know, Citizen Kane, Sunset Boulevard, there's a few times it's been done. But they hadn't inspired thousands of imitators. Like we now currently, it's a deluge. Everything starts in the middle, works Mm. its way back, and everything starts in media res. Um, But starting a comic book... This way, in 1981, was new. It was fresh. It was bold. Readers opened their comics, and everything was in danger immediately. The reader didn't have any of the normal comforts, like familiar characters, familiar settings. It's not just starting the issue with the X-Men tied up, and Mm. you go, I wonder how this happened. Everyone is dead. The world has ended, right? That's where you start. So you don't have any of these familiar things to bed you in as you open your comic book in the month. They open their comic to see the world they thought they knew, the world of the X-Men, twisted around, turned upside down, and their favorite heroes are gone or powerless, right? Mm. On, On top of that, they're seeing this dystopian future. Now, that's another thing that we're today we're all used to. Yeah. A slew of sci-fi stories in books and comics and TVs and movies presenting us with a terrible future. But this comic, published in 1981, predates The Terminator, mm. predates Blade Runner, mm. right? It, it, the, the only thing it doesn't predate is Judge Dredd, really. Yeah. Um, but even that, that was at the time, more satirical than it was dramatic. Yeah, I was about to say, it's yeah, it's more black comedy then. So, yeah. dystopian futures 
of the Matrix and all that, Blade Runner, they haven't happened yet. Um, um, nobody's saying Clement and Byrne did, invented these ideas. Mm. They were mixing together a bunch of sci-fi concepts from mm. books and old TV shows and stuff. But to the average reader, the idea of reading about a future world where the good guys have all lost, where hope is dead and humanity is dying, that was... Again, new, fresh, mm. bold, and scary. This is coming out before Alan Moore's V for Vendetta. Ooh. It's coming out before Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Before these comic books would present worlds with dark futures to be afraid of. Comics historian Sean Howe, who, who wrote a book called um, Marvel Comics The Untold Story, said of this kind of classic Marvel tale... It shook people up when they read it. There was nothing to gird you, no compass mm. to help you out. You go into that issue without any sense of how it could possibly connect to the stories you've been reading in the series last month and the month before. And then you stay in that confused state. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any prior examples like it in serial storytelling. It is doing something very sophisticated for 1981, the storytelling and the dystopian setting. This is easily the, the most bleak story Marvel had ever told to, to this point. And yes, the 80s get quite dark. We talked yeah. about Daredevil and all of that, and obviously we're going to get V Vendetta and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and stuff. But the bleakness comes from something else. So sure, Gwen Stacy had died. But the very next issue, Spidey beats the bad guy and punishes him. The end. Mm. Days of Future Past shows us a world where all the good people are gone, and virtually. And they actively say there can be no vengeance because the killers are robots who feel nothing. <laughs> this evil has removed even the hope and the chance of vengeance. It, it, you can't save the world. That's gone. They all know that from the start. And and in so, in so many bold sort of action stories, you go, we can't save everyone, but we can at least get some revenge. This yeah. story is saying, no, you can't. No, you can't. They feel nothing. There can be no vengeance. Oof. We have removed even that dark part of the soul where you might feel a little bit of pleasure from wiping them out. You can't have that because there's no feeling in these monsters, right? And there's kind of no real resolution either. The mm. horrible dystopian world is not avoided. Um, the, no one is punished. <laughs> no one is punished at the end of this. The, the reader is left like without a life raft it's incredible that feels um, very pushes... existential that feels very oh yeah i mean well we're, we're talking about life and death and whether anything we do now has meaning in the future yeah exactly very existential and it pushes x-men to this very like a darker a much darker area than the dark phoenix saga mm. the the influence uh, of days of future past is um is huge um if you bring up i think it might be the first image i've sent you which is a uh, wolverine an older wolverine with kitty pride and there's a big poster behind them mm. and you see that yeah yeah oh, wait. yeah i remember this image yeah why do you what as you, you said you've seen that online a few times i've seen that online I think we've uh, talked. I swear we've talked about this one before. What's the poster behind them? 
The poster behind them is a grid of profile pictures of different X-Men, from Cyclops to Beast to uh, Storm, and over each uh, profile picture is a, a tag saying slain, apprehended, yeah, just those two. So yeah, so it's showing killed. all the yeah. death, and it is that is perhaps the um, the most imitated comic book cover of all time. Oh yeah, certainly, certainly the most imitated Marvel cover of all time. Mm. There might be the, the death of Supergirl in in um, Crisis on Infinite Earths is quite heavily kind of imitated, homaged, um, mm. but. Artist after artist after artist paid homage to that sensational, eye-grabbing artwork of John Byrne and, and, and Terry Austin um, because it it's not just a pose. It is telling part of the story before yeah. you even open the comic. Um, and as we said, the second issue features um, the, the tagline, in this issue, everyone dies. Mm. Um, and audiences would believe it because they were so upset and despite the fact it was a great story audiences were genuinely upset and offended and angry after june gray's death so two three issues later everyone dies i think audience would be like yeah you probably would you sickos um, <laughs> days of future past would influence a whole slew of dystopian stories in marvel and and, and dc comics from age of apocalypse to old man logan age of ultron kingdom come for dc and it would it would hammer home a central theme for the next mm. decade of the x-men the government are scary the establishment is dangerous those in power are easily scared and easily scared groups of people mm. do horrifying things to those they can do things to yes from this point on the x-men knew that they had to keep fighting because their future was dark and dangerous and those in power can never be trusted. We love hearing from you guys. Drop us a line, marvel versus marvel at gmail.com or you can always find us on Twitter at Marvel versus Will. What's in the mailbag? First of all, uh, Baz Rahman has written to say uh, about uh, Days of Future Past. From what I remember, I loved Bishop but I'm too scared to rewatch these episodes in case I realise he's a knob. Like what happened when I rewatched and realised Gambit was a whiny little piss weasel. I don't think you're. Re I don't think Gambit's like that, Bass, at all. <laughs> he's really cool in this episode. He's he's really I, cool. I, I like him. Uh, I, I I I I I totally disagree with that, but I thought it was funny. Uh, Andrew Durning said, uh, I preferred the film in all honesty, but the cartoon version of Bishop was brilliant. The Phoenix Saga of yeah. the cartoon is still miles better than anything I've ever seen. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, we felt that when we did our, we did uh, multiple episodes on the Phoenix Saga. Mm. Uh, four, I think, we did in the end. Yes, um, God, that was, that was a... Two two-parters yeah. uh, spread out. Um, head back to the archives and check that out if you want an exhaustive uh, deep dive into the, the real mm. Phoenix story. Um, the animated series did it the best, hands down. It's it's very good. Uh, Chester, Chester Constable said, I remember being absolutely fuming at how comfortable Bishop overpowered Wolverine. From what comfortably. I remember... How comfortably, comfortably. How comfortably, sorry. Comfortable Bishop. Bishop. Comfortable Bishop overpowering uh, uncomfortable Wolverine. From what I remember, they fell out every three, four minutes in both episodes. 
they fell out as in oh, right okay yeah they they got they, they disagreed they get they kept falling out having little fights yeah yeah they they were really at each other weren't they in this yeah um Wolverine's older you know he's older and he's lost a step is what you meant to to yeah. get from that from that yeah. thing uh, Chester thanks for thanks for getting in touch um you don't see a huge you, you see a little bit of, of Bishop using his powers mm. um in in this but he's mainly Gun toting, isn't he? Which is- he's he's mainly gun toting. You you think he would just go? Ah, I just use my powers then. But maybe he has an excuse like they make me tired. I need a gun. No, he needs to absorb energy. You need to use it. So. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, it, they didn't really. I, I can't remember. No, it, they don't explain it, his, powers. his power. No, they didn't really explain it. You just see light light coming out of his hands and go. Okay, why isn't he doing that more? George Bingham wrote in to say, "Hi guys, it's been a while since I last did the right thing." It's been after- a while. It's been a while. Sorry, George. Just an old song that old men are singing. Uh, but after reading many comics recommended by the show and watching all the Marvel I can, I realised that I'm not doing the right thing. Oh. This, this podcast is what got me into Marvel Comics and I needed to give back once again, which is why I'm repledging to the £10 tier uh, next month. Can't wait to dive back into the plethora of content that you have to offer. Thanks for writing in, George, and it's great to have you back on board at the VIEP tier, the uh, executive tier, the, the tier for very important executive producers of the podcast. Um, and it means you'll uh, be able to uh, see the video footage of the live show as well. Um, uh, and that's going to be uh, available later this week on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Big shout outs need to go to whom, Will? Well, I'm going to put you in the picture. Because <laughs> we've got this community that keeps the show on the air, that supports us massively. We love our VIE. We love everyone. We love our VIEPs as well. That used to be the top tier, didn't it, Will? That VIEP. used to be the top tier. We used to have a big old top tier, and then we thought, no, smash Whoa. in the ceiling. Yes, smash in the, that ceiling. You're the right. Biggest, biggest broom you've ever seen. Because some people have got balls bigger than others, and they need to smash the ceiling in. And the people with the biggest balls include Peter J, Brandon Schmigilski, Randall Schmidt, Zach Thomas, Bastabier, Sam, Bindi, Sue P, Jack Davis, Billy Brown, and Zubair Qureshi. Those are all there at that top, top wrecking crew tier, the £20 tier. There we go. We love all those people. Um, and that's great. That seems to be growing all the time, William. Yeah. All the bloody time. It should grow more, I think. It supports us in ways we can we can hint, only hint, hint, we hint. Can only say thanks for. Yeah. And I think it's appropriate, Will, yeah. at this time, when we're looking at days of future past, it's appropriate to talk about your dystopian future. <laughs> a diseased and decaying world where you've got no Marvel versus Marvel to listen to. A terrifying, horrifying world of everything's collapsing. And there are cyberpunks everywhere, and there's we- no new episodes of this podcast arriving twice a month. We've imagine- both been killed by robots. We've both been killed by robots, people. Imagine- That's all your fault. A nightmarish life with no Marvel history, no Marvel <laughs> trivia, no deep dives, and suddenly everything's on a computer, and there's a joke called Johnny Minomic nearby. He looks like Keanu Reeves. It's <laughs> the terrifying world you are building for yourselves. You're not building your own prison you're building your own dystopia unless you subscribe to us 
on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel and keep this podcast going the x-men have got to go all the way back in time and stop an assassin all you've got to do is pledge three pounds a month just the cost of a cup of coffee you can avoid that harrowing nightmare that's all it would take save the podcast save the world and there's 67 bonus shows waiting for you on the other side. Mm. Um, if you go up to that VIEP tier, uh, uncover and explore all that trivia. And it's there for you right now. And Will, the first anniversary mm. month, the month of April, we unleashed a unique and just a very exciting and interesting bonus show as we explored Amalgam Comics for the first time. Oh, 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 Amalgam Comics, the time in the 90s mm. when Marvel and DC merged universes, merged characters. Yeah. Like, but without giving too much away, I mean, there's not much to give away, really, but how? I mean, that was a, a tremendous. <laughs> you, you, I know you loved that. I, about I Dark really Claw? Dark Claw, yeah, that was great. Logan I, Wayne. Whose parents get murdered, then he joins Weapon X program. <laughs> it's it's mad. It, it it did feel like some of it did feel like a very long, obscure Marvel episode, though, because you had so many weird characters that you know just just really made me laugh. Incredible! It was an incredible episode. Um, Super Soldier, the merging of Captain America and um, Superman. and Superman. Yeah. Um, who were you? Some of the famous. We had Iron Lantern as well. Iron Lantern. It was just remember, some amazing famous. characters that were merged. Mm. Amazing kind of uh, details of the history. Great world building in that. Um, that's uh, was our full length bonus episode um, for the month. Of uh, of April for the anniversary month available to those at the VIEP tier and above, and also um, how did you feel in obscure Marvel in April <laughs> when we met Doughboy for the first time? Oh, Doughboy, we hardly knew ye. <laughs> Who could forget, dear Doughboy? Oh man, what what was it? Flying by you farting. Enjoyed the you enjoyed the science behind Doughboy. I remember that. I enjoyed the um, science behind it, but it was just bizarre. It's like I I'm an evil ex Nazi. I made a man out of dough. He operates like an octopus and travels at supersonic speeds. By farting. <laughs> yeah, like the octopus of the sea. Um, every month we drop a full-length bonus episode taking a deep dive into an incredible Marvel story or a Marvel event um, that we're probably never going to get to cover from the MCU and all of that. Mm. Um, that's our full-length bonus episodes. Um, we also release Obscure Marvel each and every month, which is where me and Will take a, uh, a do a mini-episode looking at the most ridiculous and obscure moments and characters in the history of Marvel, all there on Patreon. Next month, the month of May... As Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 arrives in cinemas, our bonus show will take a deep dive into the most explosive Guardian story of all time, War of Kings. The galactic empire of the Shi'ire has powerful and dangerous new leader and is going to war with the Kree Empire, a war which could tear the fabric of reality right apart. No one's looking forward to that. The Guardians, the X-Men, the Inhumans, everybody Ooh. gets involved in this epic, epic battle between galactic kings and their galactic empires. That's where we're going in the month of May. If you uh, sign up to us on Patreon, there are waiting for you 33 full-length bonus episodes. There are 30 mini-shows, plus 
early access to every single uh, main show that we do. That's on patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel. Support the show, get great content as well. On the other side of this break, it is the MVM deep dive into days of future past. Thank you. 